The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. And welcome to this Tuesday edition of Squawkbox. You've got Karen Cho, you've got Jeff Cutmore, myself, Steve Sedgwick, and these are your headlines. Uh, the UK fuel fallout continues as the health and transport sectors warn the supply crisis threatens essential services. As officials, apparently they insist that panic buying is subsiding. China's factories report weaker profit growth for the sixth month in a row as the world's second largest economy struggles with rising commodity prices and supply chain disruptions. Evergrande and its affiliates rise in Hong Kong traders. The Chinese central bank says it will protect consumers in the housing market, while the troubled developer faces another interest payment deadline tomorrow. Fed Governors Robert Kaplan and Eric Rosengren announced their early retirements as fallout from the central bank trading scandal continues. The Chair Jay Powell and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen set to face lawmakers today. In Germany, coalition building talks start with the uh, Greens and the FPP set to start discussions while the CDU's Armin Laschet maintaining hopes of becoming Chancellor despite the centre-left SPD claiming victory. I don't claim first place, we're second, but a coalition is formed on the basis of factual matters from the majority in the German parliament. Right, I'm going to have to get something off my chest straight away at the top of this Squawk Box show. And I'll start this read. I doubt very much I'll finish it. UK Environment Secretary George Eustace has told Sky News, our sister channel, that there are signs that the panic at the fuel pumps is easing. There you go. I've got to stop there. Panic. There is no panic, uh, Mr Eustace, as well. People are having to go about their daily life. And if they haven't got fuel to take their children to school, if they haven't got fuel to put in their transit van so they can go and do work, if they haven't got fuel so they can go to the hospital uh, and visit loved ones or meet their appointments or actually get to work themselves as health sector workers, it is not panic. I find this absolutely ludicrous. For those of us who live in the countryside, we need cars. We don't have public transport to take us from A to B on a regular basis. We wish we all had affordable electric cars, but we haven't yet because that transition is taking a while because of the cost of the electric cars, because of the lack of infrastructure from the government as well, various governments as well. So when you say it's panic buying, I say it's people trying to go about their daily lives. Right. This is many fuel stations ran dry after sales were rationed, apparently, due to a shortage of lorry drivers disrupting supply chains. Right. Let's get to Juliana, who is at a petrol station. And Juliana, I'm sorry, I can't stand when government ministers or people tell us that we are panicking. And actually, most of us just want to get about our daily lives. We want to go to work. We don't want to work from home. We want to actually get to our appointments. We want to take our children to school. And you're at a petrol station, which I know for a fact had petrol yesterday. And I can see over your left shoulder. Just have a look. Is that a little yellow thing on top of the pump there that says no fuel? It certainly is, Steve. And 
We've seen many, many drivers already cycle in and out of this petrol station disappointed this morning because, as you say, yesterday people thought they could rely on this station to have fuel for them. Not the case this morning. And I think, you know, Steve, you've taken issue with the word panic. I think it's important to clarify that when we talk about this petrol crisis, it's also it's not a petrol shortage. It's a shortage of lorry drivers. This is about drivers. It's not about fuel. There's no shortage of fuel. There's plenty of it at the refineries, at the terminal. The issue here is about getting the fuel from those terminals and refineries to these petrol stations. And according to the Petrol Retailers Association, just to give viewers a sense of the scale of the issue, up to 90% of its members in some parts of the country had run out of fuel yesterday. So we were seeing massive dry spells for many parts of the country. And all this started because a few BP stations had to close at the end of last week because of supply issues, because they weren't able to get fuel. And then this, of course, spurred people to rush out and fill up their tanks for many reasons. And and now the government has had to come in, step up its response. So here's what we've heard so far. The government has put the army on standby with up to 150 military tanker drivers uh, to be trained up and ready to be deployed if necessary. At this stage, it's not deemed necessary. Uh, They've also made some changes to the rules that govern lorry drivers to uh, get truckers working longer hours uh, and also encouraging more people to become lorry drivers, easing visa restrictions, loosening those rules uh, for foreign HDV drivers. There's also mounting calls for the government to prioritize access for essential workers. Now, the industry has come out a statement yesterday from a group of leading uh, fuel companies, including Shell and BP, saying that uh, because now more drivers than usual have filled up their tanks, they should see the situation ease in the coming days. Of course, that's what you would expect the industry to say, because, of course, the more people who come out to get fuel, the more intense the crisis becomes. But there are experts saying that this shortage of drivers is an issue that is here to stay. There is a shortage of up to 100,000 lorry drivers in the United Kingdom. And there's a lot of debate around why we have this shortage, with many suggesting that Brexit is to blame including Olaf Scholz, who is a potential uh, successor to Angela Merkel. Now, here in the UK, the Environment Secretary, George Eustace, denies that this crisis of lorry drivers is because of Brexit. Take a listen. None of this is because we've left the European Union. As we leave the European Union, we've taken back control of immigration. We have the ability, as we've announced this week, to uh, introduce short scheme visa schemes when we want to. Uh, and we've also, uh, also as, a, as an economy, got to try to see our wage rates rising. Uh, more pay for those uh, on the on the lowest level of pay at the moment. And we don't want to undermine uh, that market. But certainly, I think the biggest factor in all of this has been COVID. We're seeing it around the world, disruption to supply chains, shortages of labor, uh, quite a bit of turbulence, actually, as the whole world comes out of this pandemic. Well, it seems as though it is a combination of factors that has led to this uh, acute shortage of lorry drivers, a combination of COVID, Brexit, recent tax changes as well. And uh, Steve, just coming back full circle to how you started the conversation around whether we should think about this as panic buying, um, it's very clear that this is a different situation to when uh, we saw a shortage of Lural earlier in the pandemic. When you don't have petrol, you can't get where you need to go. So people, you can very easily argue, are acting rationally here. So we'll have to see over the coming days whether the um, crisis indeed has eased. But the government has tried to put in a backstop saying that should the situation continue to be intense and potentially deteriorate, they do have the army standing by to step in uh, should it be necessary. All right, Back over to you. I'll just add, this isn't like toilet roll. You know, we can all survive without toilet roll, believe it or not.
There are alternatives. We, we can survive without hand sanitizer. Thanks, by the way, uh, Julia. I'm, I'm on another rant here. But you need we, one of the two, usually. Well, yeah, for sure. But, you know, th there is a, a life without toilet roll. But without petrol, there are a lot of things you just cannot do in this country, especially if you're not in a metropolitan area. Right. I mean, habits have to change. You habits. need to drive slower. Yeah. You need to perhaps not make a trip. I mean, whether you can come to work later this week is a big question. But you I, know I, I, am I am talking to the bosses now and saying if I have problems, I, I either have to, take, I have to stay in a hotel, I have to go home this evening and get a train up so that I can basically be here, or I can work from home if I cannot get fuel. It is a real clear and present danger. I live 42 miles exactly away from this office, exactly. On my journey in this morning, I pass at circa 15 to 20 petrol stations. Circa uh, 15 to 18 of those were closed. There were one stroke two possibly open with fuel and the queue was 30, 40 long. What time do I have to get up in the morning? Bearing in mind, I already get up at 3 a.m. to get myself fuel at yeah, I mean, this is indicative, isn't it, of what's going on across yeah. the country. It's not just you. You know, you are a key worker, and if you think in other key industries, there's a much larger infrastructure, say doctors, nurses, for instance, that do need to actually get to work. And you've had a COVID crisis that has been one that you've managed to see through when you've come into the office regularly. But this particular one, there's no steering around it. There's no way to get out of the, the mix, right? Joe Armitage, UK politics lead analyst at Global Council. Joe, I, I really resent when government ministers tell me that most people are panicking about it. They're not panicking. Do you know, most people in this country actually leave it till they've got under a quarter of a tank left. Now they're actually probably doing the sensible thing and actually filling up their tanks for a change, especially when there are potential problems actually going about their life. Has the government made a complete and utter mess of this? Well, I think it's very difficult to say that it's just down to panic buying, because as you say, some people will require petrol in their tank in order to get to work. And actually a great proportion of, of the British public uh, do uh, drive to work. So I think it, it cannot just be squarely down to panic buying. Uh, but last winter, I, I worked in government um, advising on fuel supply. And I think actually this is attributable to a degree of panic buying. You know, if you look at the sale of jerry cans over the last few days, I think Halford's released some information suggesting that the number of jerry cans they've sold has increased by almost 2,000%. And you, know, you can look at some images of people filling up uh, jerry cans. Um, so some images, uh, I think, have been a little bit doctored, um, but you, you do nonetheless see some genuine ones. And I think there is some evidence that people are buying fuel in a way that they don't need to. You know, people potter about the town, you know, a couple of times a week, they don't really require a, a, a tank filled right up to the brim. But you've got people descending on fuel stations in order to make sure that they've got a full tank. Uh, and actually, that has resulted in a situation where 90% uh, in some regions of, of forecourts have no fuel. Joe, if what you say is true, then what we get to at the end of the day is that people don't need as much fuel at some point. Those people are not driving the cars around. They don't need the fuel. They're not going to have an issue down the track and then things should just normalise. But it doesn't necessarily feel at this point we're going to get to uh, a situation that's normal even by the end of the week. How long is it going to take and, and should the government be deploying measures like bringing in the army to ship around some of this petrol fuel? Yeah, I think... This question of how you bridge to normality, you know, given the fact that the underlying cause is seemingly a structural shortage of HGV drivers, 
I think Operation Escalin, which is the use of army drivers to drive fuel tankers, was only really designed in the event of a strike because you have visibility over when that strike will take place. Usually it's at least a fortnight. And so you are able to prepare the military personnel to drive the fuel tankers uh, and then put them in those tankers uh, in two weeks. And then you've you've covered the period of time where the staff are, are striking. But in this case, you can't just permanently have 500 or so military personnel driving around fuel tankers. I mean, this is just not how you run a country. So I think this is probably got to be debated some more in government before they actually deploy the army. I know they're thinking about uh, training them so they're able to be deployed, and that takes about two weeks or so. Uh, But I think there needs to be a serious discussion about measures that you can take in between having to necessarily deploy the army um, that, for example, uh, will ensure that, that people buy fuel in quantities that they require, but without any sort of draconian limits or uh, reserving particular fuel stations for key workers, etc. Because I think that just creates more complexity. Often you've only got one member of staff in each petrol station. I just don't think the practicality really um, is, is viable for that. Hey, Joe, when we uh, analyse this uh, post-fact and try and figure out exactly what happened so that we can make sure it doesn't happen again, who do we need to point the finger here uh, at? Is it the uh, oil companies who perhaps uh, raised the flag too early and too publicly when they could have had consultation privately with government and uh, prevented this from happening? Or is it the government for failing really to recognise that after the CO2 crisis, there was yet another crisis coming over the hill as a result of uh, supply chain problems here? So who who takes the responsibility for this? Well, I guess you've got two things. You know, one is, yes, there was a meeting in government uh, the other week uh, unfortunately, a representative from uh, a haulage association decided to brief the press that there was this incredibly limited and localised uh, lack of fuel at certain petrol stations. And actually, it wasn't that the petrol station had totally run out of fuel. It was that certain grades of fuel had run out. So, for example, diesel uh, might have not been sold at a particular uh, petrol station in a, in a few regions. But then this was briefed to the press. And lo and behold, you know, when the media, as we've seen over the last four days, repeatedly at the top of every news hour, has that there's some sort of massive sh- fuel shortage, people go out and they buy fuel. And I don't think that's necessarily irrational. But what I think is not helping is having uh, so much discussion about it. Because frankly, the country is not geared up to have people buy sort of five times as much fuel as they ordinarily do in a given week. That's just not how the supply chain works. It's very difficult to repair it, to meet that demand uh, within a very short period of time. But I think you know, to, to your other part of the question, I think it's not really the case that the government is able to prepare in advance for something like this. And I'd also say that obviously we've just come through a pandemic The economy that we're going into is, I think, very different to the one that we exited. And ultimately, many sectors shut down completely. You know, things were not being produced. You've just had the economy 
being turned back on again effectively. And some sectors are much larger than they were before. And actually, the sectors that are larger are the ones that require HGV drivers. And you're seeing a lot of churn uh, of HGV drivers with certain industries, with the profit margins, able to essentially poach or retain their existing HGV drivers through increased pay. But the ones with the slimmer profit margins, you know, such as the downstream oil sector, they just can't afford to do that. And so they're suffering. Joe, are we being lied to? And again, I, I'm not going to say where I stand on Brexit. Uh, it, it's irrelevant. But isn't it just disingenuous when government ministers turn around and say this is nothing to do with Brexit, when the Road Haulage Association says 20,000 HGV drivers left the UK uh, for reasons associated with Brexit, and we happen to have an HGV crisis, whether it be in the food industry, whether it be carbon dioxide, whether it be um, this issue, whether it be on all kinds of issues as well. The fact of the matter is the RHA says 20,000 drivers left because of Brexit. Surely the government has to say, yes, Brexit has a ramification. Brexit is partly to blame for this. Yeah, I think, you know, it's obviously multivariate. I think some people are, are suggesting that this entire issue is down to Brexit. And, and I think that would be wrong because obviously you are seeing a HGV driver shortage issue in many countries like Poland, Netherlands, Belgium. There are many countries in Europe that face a HGV driver shortage issue. And I think probably because of these wider sector issues uh, that I referred to, because the economy is just very different uh, in comparison to what it was. And actually, the UK has had a HGV sh driver shortage uh, issue for, for multiple years, and it's due to, I think, other factors. Um, but yeah, is this attributable to Brexit? You know, No, not entirely, but obviously it's multivariate. So to a small degree, um, at the margins, uh, yes, it, it is a factor. Can I ask you then about the political fallout here for Boris Johnson? I mean, there's been a series of issues around uh, lead portfolios in recent months. It's uh, not cast a strong light on the management from the government. Now we have this crisis playing out that affects so many people across the country. What does Boris Johnson need to do from here? Well, I, I think the issue needs to be gripped quite effectively in government. You know, there are a lot of new ministers. Uh, I, I know that the Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, uh, Steve Barclay, is, is responsible for these issues and he's a very effective and able uh, individual. So I'm sure uh, he's got good people around him advising on this uh, about taking measures at the appropriate juncture to have the most effect. You know, if you deploy the army at this point, for example, does that create greater panic and then exacerbate the issue even further? You know, are there measures in between that you can take uh, to bridge us to uh, normality uh, in lieu of using the army in this way? Because I, I think there are. So, you know, it, it is a case of, of, of the sort of competence of the government and you are seeing uh, many different flashpoints and you just had the CO2 shortage issue resolved. You've got energy prices increasing quite significantly. You know, it seems that oil prices are creeping up. So you've got this cost of living pressure. You've got a budget uh, the end of next month, there might be some measures in there uh, to ease uh, those sort of pinch points for people. Um, but yeah, I think competency is, is starting to, to enter the political fray, as it were. Uh, and, and this could be a testing time. We'll have to see uh, what the Prime Minister's message is at the beginning of this week um, at the Conservative Party conference. 
leave it there but what how ironic that you should quote the chancellor of the duchy of lancaster mr barclay who i believe in fact i know for facts i spoke to him a few times was the former brexit secretary of course who is now also quite ironically calling for more overseas hgv drivers to be allowed in post brexit as well i find it quite delicious joe but we've got to leave it there joe armitage thank you very much indeed uk politics lead analyst at global council karen uh, oh let I'm me take you sorry <laughs> it's a tease I want to tell you about this one because there's another great guest coming up. Uh, we have more on this developing story later in the show when we speak to Gordon Balmer, who is the executive director of the Petrol Retailers Association. I think it was 30 years at BP, so we get to it. Uh, that interview coming up at 8.30 CT. Sorry, Karen, what was I throwing to you? Yeah, plenty of action on the markets too, uh, away from this fuel crisis. We're watching uh, the markets, you can see, uh, very much pushing up the energy price. And that was a strong catalyst for the Dow and the outsized performance versus the S&P and also the NASDAQ. So uh, gains are some of the big uh, energy names. Occidental, for instance, that stock was up 7%, but right across the industry, very strong jump in those energy stocks. But worth noting, the other catalyst here behind the scenes has been what's been playing out with the Fed. We saw that language from the central bank last week, putting in place uh, a taper for the end of this year, just positioning investors around a November taper, but also the prospect of uh, a rate hike from as early as next year, uh, that coming through when uh, the dot plots. So the market has been moving slowly towards the more cyclical end of the market and that's been very negative for the technology space and you can see again the nasdaq a casualty in session trading down by about half of a percent and big movers to the upside for instance likes of goldman sachs in the banking sector as we talk about a slightly firmer interest rate environment potentially down the track and uh, a margin expansion story but uh, on the other side those big name stocks that have been moving to the upside in recent months the likes of salesforce and microsoft those were the real underperformers in session I want to take you to Treasuries, 1.51% where we got to in that US 10-year yield. And you can see we're not far off it now as we start to push higher. And it begs the question, how far do we move on this yield now? Because in the past, when it's moved, it has moved fairly aggressively in a short space of time. So Jay Powell out later on today and also tomorrow speaking, his language very much will be key for this yield. And that is what we are watching closely. I want to take you to the trades around oil. Uh, this is where we've been uh, in morning session, where we got to yesterday, uh, bounce of about 1.9, 1.8% on some of these trades. So uh, decent uh, moves to the upside that underpinned those energy stocks. And you can see 76, the handle on WTI, 80 on Brent, calls in the marketplace now for, for 90 by year-end. Uh, Goldman Sachs, for instance, changing their assumptions yesterday. We were mentioning that early on, but uh, the market stateside had a chance to react yesterday too. And natural gas prices, uh, worth noting what we've seen here. We've been up 52% in the quarter. That is an incredible pace. In fact, the fastest pace we've witnessed since about uh, the third quarter of 2005. You can see the price this morning are bouncing 6%. So it is telling you right across the energy complex some of the pressures at play here. Asian markets. I want to take you to uh, some of the big fears underlying this market still. China and Evergrande. And what is well and truly noted by a lot of fund managers is that the situation around the property developer has not been sold. So in some ways, a dead calm in the background as investors waited out for uh, any decision making by Beijing on how to, to settle these debts, how the company can find its way out or whether there will be contagion across various parts of the market. So that is still a huge theme for markets, even though we have a little bit more stability in the trade today of China bouncing 1.6 on Hong Kong. And you can see uh, the Japanese 
stock market modestly lower. Where you are seeing losses, though, is on Australia. That market down more than 100 points, so 1.4 plus percent. I want to take you to the opening calls here in Europe as we get set up for the trade. We're chasing green arrows right across the board. It was the day yesterday we were focused very much on that German stock market as we saw the election results filter through uh, the market there. At the end of the session, was up by roughly just over a quarter one percent, the fourth positive session in five. But we are chasing just a little bit more across the board today as this market looks a little bit firmer at this stage. Now, U.S. futures, just to complete the picture, uh, this is the, the early indication from uh, our U.S. peers. We are chasing slim gains to the upside again, but the Dow is the one that is perched firmer, again, reinforcing that stretch for cyclicals rather than growth at this stage. Jeff. Yeah, let's have a, a quick chat about uh, Delivering Alpha. This is the uh, CNBC flagship event where we bring a, a lot of market expertise to bear. This year, uh, Delivering Alpha will be um, a virtual format event. We've got some of the biggest names in the investment community. Uh, U.S. colleagues will speak to Social Capital's Chamat Palapataya, Toma Bravo's Orlando Bravo, JP Morgan's uh, Mary Callahan uh, Doe's, and many, many more, of course. For more information, you can visit the website deliveringalpha.com. Okay, coming up on the show, China's central bank promises to protect consumers exposed to the housing market as it injects more cash into the banking system. Amid the Evergrande fallout, we'll have the latest after the break. And for more on the fallout from the supply chain disruptions affecting fuel stocks, you can check out CNBC.com. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. Welcome back to Squawkbox, everybody. Let's focus on the data coming out of China. We saw uh, yet again some uh, weaker data trends. The Chinese industrial profits grew at a much slower pace in August, rising 10.1% on the year compared with a 16.4% increase in July. This is now the sixth straight month of slower growth. Uh, Sam, let's let's get to you on this. I mean, obviously, there are some uh, COVID-related uh, issues in these numbers here. But more interestingly, for anybody looking at a rebound, maybe some concerns about rising coal prices and its impact on factories having to shut down. What can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely, Jeff. It's a very fluid situation. I could say that the writing was certainly on the wall, given a lot of the other data that we've got out for the month of August. I mean, you only have to look at those industrial output numbers to see that that slowed down for the the most since uh, July last year. So it was really no surprise that that uh, profits in Chinese industrial firms would slow for a six month in a row uh, in August. So certainly in terms of what is dragging on these earnings, we do know these higher commodity prices really has been putting pressure 
pressure on these already squeezed profit margins, despite the Chinese authorities uh, making a number of moves and bringing in a number of measures to try to uh, rein in what they call these unreasonable price hikes. But of course, Chinese manufacturers, as you rightly pointed out, have also been hit by these uh, restrictions as a result of the COVID situation, the supply chain bottlenecks, this global chip crunch, uh, and also the flooding caused by uh, the bad weather in the month of August. But now, of course, uh, they do face some of these disruptions caused by the restrictions to really uh, rein in energy consumption and these output curbs. We've already seen uh, this uh, power squeeze that's been worsening across the country over in China. That has been raising some concerns about the economic outlook and the future of growth. Certainly in the second half, we all already know these power disruptions uh, have caused some problems when it comes to production at factories that supply to the likes of Apple and Tesla. And so this is likely to exacerbate this slowdown that we have seen uh, when it comes to the Chinese economy. And we've already seen uh, a number of banks uh, continuing to uh, downgrade their growth forecasts uh, for China, the likes of uh, Goldman Sachs and Nomura, uh, some of the latest. But I would say uh, that the big uh, concern now really is about the downstream players in China as they seem to be absorbing the costs, the upstream players not so badly affected. They are seeing triple digit growth, um, but that does paint the picture certainly of this uh, imbalance in profitability in these industrial firms in China, really pointing to a continued uneven recovery over in the Chinese economy. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.